Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs on the campus of Wayne State University in the center of the great city of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and I am with our amazing Troy Eller English. Guess what, Troy? What, Dan? It is our 75th episode. I can't believe that we've made it this long. I feel so old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how, did, how did we last so long? And by the way, the longest continuous <laughs> podcast out of Wayne State University. We beat them all. <laughs> That's right. We have, we have the magic somehow. Or they just don't listen. Well, well probably, probably that one, but you know. No, we're doing pretty well. 75. We're going to go for 100. Absolutely. And we're going to have wonderful shows. Yeah. When's your, what's your favorite show so far? Of the 75. The one I recorded. <laughs> no. Of course. My favorite's the one I'm not on. Oh, sure. There were a few. There were, there were like two or three. Yeah. So anyway, on our 75th show, it's going to be about Detroit. About a dark time in our city. Well, any other city, actually. Chicago, Cleveland, Boston, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. They're all kind of the same with this issue, but we're going to focus on Detroit. And it's about the people of Detroit. It's about what was not talked about for some, not reported in the mainstream newspapers. It's about police brutality and misconduct against the African-American population of Detroit. On the surface, a story of horrors, but underneath, a story of resolve and light. We will be talking with Professor Matt Lasseter, who received his PhD at the University of Virginia in 1999, who now teaches at the University of Michigan. He is on the steering committee of the U of M Carceral State Project and the co-principal investigator of its Documenting Criminalization and Confinement Research Initiative. He is also the director of the Policing and Social Justice History Lab and coordinator of the Environmental Justice History Lab, each of which involves undergraduate students researchers to collaborate public engagement projects. And we will be talking about his Policing and Social Justice History Lab project in the multimedia digital exhibit called Detroit Under Fire that documents police brutality from 1957 to 1973. But more importantly, it discusses the the resolve of the civil rights and black power groups who demanded accountability for systemic police violence. Their main goal was to uncover the history of this police violence by digging into archives around Detroit. And when I mean they, I'm talking about a team of undergraduates who dove into the archives, digitizing over 1,500 archival documents, photographs, and video clips, allowing audiences to explore the original source and multiple perspectives and depth in this fascinating website. There are over 100 web pages that the viewer can look at, interactive maps, curriculum guides, and analysis of various incidents of violence and misconduct. Stories that are known, but many that are not now available for the general public to view this web that once was nicely tucked away in archives, always available, but now for ease to view. As I said earlier, this is a dark history, but through this dark episode in American history, there are always those glimmers of light in the darkness, the light of those that fought back, that tried to expose the evils of a police state, of those that never gave up for justice. And that is what you should take away from this website, those that fought on. So please sit back and enjoy this interview with Professor Lasseter about the dynamic website Detroit Under Fire. So see you next year and have a peaceful holiday from me and Troy. Black, 
Um, Matt, thanks so much for joining Tales for the Ruther Library. We really appreciate you taking the time to um, talk to us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, um, what I love about this conversation is it's not a book, it's not an article, it's not a paper. It's We're talking about a website, so I'm really excited about that. Now, Detroit Under Fire is a major website of learning, which took a lot of effort, I know. Uh, how did you come up with the idea for this project and the steps to really getting it going? Because some other people might find that of interest. So after the 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri, and Michael Brown killing, and there was a lot of attention to police violence and how little we actually know about what is happening. And I started thinking, what if we did a research project getting back into the history of this? And around the same time, there was a lot of discussion in history departments around the country about the need to get students out of the classroom, into the archives, doing collaborative projects, not just writing a research paper that the professor is the only one who's gonna read, but doing something for public audiences. And so I was really wondering like, what would be a good project? And it seemed like the history of Detroit, the history of policing and community activism in Detroit. I knew about the Ruther Library nearby, the Burton Collection and the Detroit Public Library has, has Coleman Young's papers and other papers there. And, and so it was really a project to get undergraduate students to become historians and scholars, uh, you know, together. And and the initial research question was how many people did the police and law enforcement in Detroit kill during the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, civil rights era, really, from the late fifties to the early seventies. But that expanded dramatically in terms of the website, because we found so much in the archives about activism and protests and individual cases. And so it it became a sprawling, you know, it's a, the website's probably longer than a book. Yeah. And it was really about mobilizing the power of undergrads to do archival research and then present it to the public through maps and a, a website that includes the archival documents that we found. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like the research findings that you you discovered. Now, you use the term silence in the archives. Is this what you're referring to? There are incredible silences around state violence more generally and around police killings in particular. The Police departments and prosecutors who review their actions do not release almost anything to the public except what they want to. And it's not even possible to know with accuracy how many people the police department uh, killed in a particular year, like 1958 or 1972. You can find traces in the archives, but occasionally they'll release a number like 17. Mm -hmm. in 19 you know in a particular year and no names attached and so we really were trying to figure out how do you how do you uncover history that the government has deliberately kept secret from the public and we looked through all the newspapers the Detroit News the Detroit Free Press the Michigan Chronicle which was the city's black newspaper and you find some of the stories there, but usually 
it's just the police account that they released to the newspaper. And often it wouldn't, the police would kill somebody and it, it wouldn't even put their name in the newspaper. It would just mm -hmm. say 16 year old killed by police and it'd be a short you know, paragraph. And so that's when we started going to the archives, looking in the mayor's papers, parents would complain to the mayor, looking at the civil rights groups when they would investigate. Um, what we discovered was that the investigations that we were able to conduct were really possible because of the investigations that impacted families and civil rights groups demanded and did themselves at the time. And the official investigations were often cover-ups or rarely made public. But so where we found most of the important materials in the papers of the NAACP, uh, lawyers who would sue the police department or represent families, and often the Detroit Commission on Community Relations would do an investigation and report to the mayor about what happened. And so that was really our project to, to go back and uncover a history that had been you know suppressed at the time and then buried in the archives since then. Right. right. And I'm going to throw this out there. Did you ever try to contact the Detroit Police Department to ask us their archives or their file rooms? So we filed uh, several Freedom of Information Act requests with the Detroit Police Department, and we actually got the Homicide Bureau investigative reports for a couple of the most controversial cases during this era. The uh, killing of Cynthia Scott in 1963 and the killing by the stress unit of teenagers Ricardo Buck and Craig Mitchell in 1971. But the police department is not very responsive. The city of Detroit is not very responsive to Freedom of Information Act requests in general. And when in other we have put in requests and they will sometimes provide the official number of the people killed by police in a particular year but but no names hmm. and the i actually think the law should be changed to require police departments and prosecutor offices to release these kinds of documents to the to the community and the families that are impacted and to the public but Get, the police department archives are generally closed and trying to get anything out of the police department is really difficult, not just in Detroit. Um, this is true all over the country. It, it's not it's not designed to be accessible to the public or to researchers. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say it's a it's a common occurrence, common story of hearing trying to get into uh, police records, uh, their file rooms, or even any kind of access, even through FOIA. Um, uh, specifically, I remember reading a book about how this archivist tried to dig into the L.A. police department and wrote a book about it. What we were able to do is find police records in the mayor's papers when a family complained to the mayor. So you know, a family or the NAACP on behalf of a family would pressure the mayor's office about saying that their son was shot, it was wrongful killing, it was murder, they wanted answers. And the mayor's office would then ask the police department 
for answers and they would get a lot of documents. They didn't share them with the families, but they wanted to kind of know what happened. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we identified 188 homicides and probably for 15 or 20 of them, we found a paper trail in the mayor's papers at the Ruther, especially Mayor, mayor Jerome Kavanaugh in the, at the Ruther Library. But the, this is an unusual kind of situation when just a lot of pressure around a particular case. And most of the people killed by police, there were no protests. The family was poor. They black. They were not, didn't have power, and nothing really happened. And it's just a it's just a one paragraph in a newspaper, if it even made it into the newspaper at all. Right, right, and that's kind of like what you're doing is really yeah. You, what you described earlier is really describing for undergraduates how to be historians, and that's putting the jigsaw puzzle together. And this is one major jigsaw puzzle, I must say. Um, let's talk about your website. I mean, you're, you're the nuts and bolts of it. I mean, when our users go and click on it and discover it, what are they going to find? What, what kind of, how is it structured? Um, they're going to find some fascinating documents. They're going to find some haunting material. How interactive is it? The website starts in 1957 and we chose that year because the NAACP and the ACLU launched, launched a campaign for civilian oversight of the police department. And it's really when the anti-police brutality movement in Detroit revved back up as part of the national civil rights movement. And there, there were plenty of instances of protests against the police before, but we really started in the late 50s and we ended it in 1973 when Coleman Young got elected and the police department came under black political control so it goes from the late 50s to the early 70s, roughly the traditional civil rights era. And the it's divided into five sections. There's 100 pages total. And really, the five sections correspond to the fact that I, I put the students into five teams and gave them a three or four year period where they had to try to uncover the police killings during that period. and. What we try to do with this website is really bring the archive to audiences that can't easily go into the archives, take the time. And so there's 100 web pages, and most of the pages are a combination of photographs, archival documents. Sometimes we'll put an excerpt of a document, but you can click on the caption and read the whole eight or 20 page document. And that's really designed for teachers to use in a classroom where they could pick a few documents and have the students analyze them, not just read our interpretation of what happened, but investigate and figure it out for themselves. And then probably the highlight of the website is the maps. We located every police killing other police brutality incidents and various other historical events that um in the actual physical space where they happen so you can click on a dot on the map and a pop-up box will tell you uh, what happened there who got killed at this address and the maps are based in either the racial segregation of the city or the economic 
segregation and economic distinctions of the neighborhoods, which allows viewers to really recognize the patterns that most of the people killed were were either killed in black neighborhoods, but this is one of the most important findings of the mapping. A really large percentage of the black people killed by the police or brutalized by the police were actually brutalized in the downtown and midtown, what we now call midtown Detroit areas, or along the commercial corridors, or on the boundary line between a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood. And the mapping shows that police violence in Detroit was not primarily something that happened inside the poorest black neighborhoods, but it was something that happened along the color line or in the downtown and midtown business districts. And it was much more about maintaining racial segregation, uh, trying to impose uh, really a white supremacist order on the city. And that, that I think is one of the most important findings of the project. It it really was. I caught myself going down the rabbit hole with these maps and discovered the same thing. It was like, hold it, there is a connection here to the lines. And it's and I'm sure a lot of other cities in the United States see can see the same thing if they map it out as well. Now you mentioned earlier you um you're hoping that teachers can use your website. Do you have teacher plan templates or a curriculum base for uh let's say K through twelve to be uh using the website? We have a few products that we've released and we're working on quite a few more. And the the advantage of the website or the power of the website is its breadth, but it's also very sprawling and very dense and almost overwhelming. And there's just so much material. There's around 1,500 archival documents on there. There's 50 maps. And so what we're doing is taking uh, taking individual stories and turning them into multimedia productions that are designed for classroom use. So the story of the crash campaign in 1960-61, where the Detroit Police Department arrested 1,500 black men in a in a after two white women were killed downtown, or the Cynthia Scott killing in 1963, or some of the major events that happened in the mid to, mid to late 60s, like the Kershaw uh, uprising or the New Bethel incident, and we're taking these stories and publishing them on a different platform called ArcGIS Story Maps, in which it's much more document forward, less text, and that's designed for classroom use. And then we've also held uh, seminars with public school teachers in Detroit to get their feedback on how best to present this, um, this kind of information to students. And the most important thing I think we've realized is that best way to teach this website is not to focus primarily on the violence of the police department and the trauma facing people killed and brutalized by the police that's a really important historical story but it's a difficult thing to teach students especially younger students in the classroom and so we're really trying to design the curricular projects around 
community activism and to focus much more on the resilience and the protests of the black community in particular and tell the story of police violence and the civil rights movement in a northern city detroit from the perspective of the activism itself and so the a big project that we're working on that we'll hopefully release next year is going to really be taking the material on this website and putting it into an interactive timeline that's about activism and the anti-police brutality movement over several decades in Detroit, rather than just about the violence. Cool. That is excellent. I mean, I noticed that too, when I was going through your website, it's like, here are the stories. There are many, many stories. I gotta say, folks, there's tons, and some of them are like just oppressive. Like hearing about it, reading about it, looking at the documentation. Uh, one story that spoke out, spoke to me, and you keep mentioning her, is the Th Cynthia Scott story. Um, can you briefly just tell us what happened and result of? Cynthia Scott was a black woman in her 20s, and she was walking down the street in 1963 when a white police officer shot and killed her. This happened only a couple weeks after Martin Luther King Jr. had come to Detroit in the famous Walk to Freedom march, more than 100,000 people down Woodward Avenue. And it was this great moment in the history of Detroit where there was this outpouring of support for for the civil rights movement. And the white mayor, Jerome Cavanaugh, praised King. And then a couple weeks later, a black woman got killed. She was a sex worker. She was not the kind of person that the NAACP would generally get involved with. And so it was ignored at first, but it actually became a cause for black radical groups and working class people. And they started protesting because they mm -hmm. saw themselves in Cynthia Scott that she could just be killed. And that was it. And so the police officer claimed that she had tried to attack him with a knife and that he had to shoot her in self-defense. And we obtained the homicide file from the Detroit Police Department through a Freedom of Information Act request. And the homicide file proves that this was a false cover story. Yeah. And there were six different black witnesses who saw the officer shoot her without justification and then plant the knife on her body. And the homicide file also reveals that the investigators coached the officers to amend their statements to reconcile with the forensic evidence and with one another. And so the police department knew that the officer had killed her unarmed, but they framed her as having been armed and the prosecutor exonerated the officer um, in what was really a, a biased investigation. And there were massive protests in the streets. And it's a really important case, not just because it was part of the pattern of police violence, in this case, you know, arguably murder of unarmed black people, but also it, it was a shift in the civil rights movement in Detroit in the 1960s, away from the NAACP and the Urban League, the more traditional civil rights organizations, 
being at the center of the action and toward the groups that would become associated with black power, much more of a people's movement. And the Cynthia Scott case in 1963 is one of those cases. Like we, we all know about Emmett Till and we all know about these cases from places like Birmingham and Mississippi and these Southern cases. And it was, you know, as important in Detroit as the Southern cases that everybody learns about when they learn about the civil rights movement in middle school or high school. That's exactly why this website is needed and need to be pushed out even further. I mean, there's the stories are everywhere. I was just having a conversation with family the other day and kept talking about the South and the South. And it's like, no, the North was just as bad. And there's stories out there that need to be told. And one story that you mentioned this also, you mentioned stress, which was a, um, uh, it, it, it means stop the robberies, enjoy safe streets. It was a program set up by the Detroit police system. And I believe when we talk about it a little further, when you describe it, I'm imagining people in other cities will be nodding their heads knowing that there are similar programs set up by the police departments in the past or currently right now that are similar to what stress did. Um, this still haunts many people in Detroit when I talked to uh, that generation. What was stress and how did the community respond to this program? Stress began in 1971, and it was a decoy police unit. The idea was that the officers would be undercover, and then they would become themselves targets of muggers, and they would catch them in the act. It was confidential when they started it, but when it came out in the media, they defended it as saying that they were protecting Black people who were the main victims of crime. But most of the officers in the stress program were white and not black. And it mainly operated not in black neighborhoods, but in the Cass Corridor, which is the area we now call Midtown and was beginning to gentrify at the time, all around the Wayne State University campus area where the Detroit Institute for the Arts is and, and the other museums. And so stress, I should say, was only one part of a real militarization of policing that happened after the 1967 uprising and the rise of black power groups and real challenges to the white dominated police department and city government. And so the police department in Detroit was the deadliest per capita in the country during the late 60s and early 1970s. And in the early 70s, the police department overall killed more than 100 people in three years. Stress was responsible, stress officers, for killing 22 people, 22 out of a little bit more than 100 in a three-year period from 1971 to 1973. And the, the first seven or eight people killed by stress, their deaths did not even make the newspapers. Almost mm -hmm. all of them were Black males who were shot and killed, and their lives didn't matter enough to, to the media to even be covered. But then, in September of 1971, 
a stress unit killed two black teenagers, Ricardo Buck, 15 years old, and Craig Mitchell, 16 years old. And the shooting two black teenagers in the street was a huge traumatic event for Detroit and the black community in particular. It led to massive protests in the fall of 1971 and multiple investigations including by the State Civil Rights Division of the Detroit Police Department and promises to reform stress so they would become less uh, deadly. One of the things that came out in the investigation was that a single white officer, Raymond Peterson, had participated in the killing of um, nine different people. And he had been hailed as a crime-fighting hero by the police department until... In uh, 1973, he was actually um, indicted for planting a knife on a on a dead black male whom he had shot. And Ken Cockrell, who was a radical lawyer in Detroit, his papers are at the Ruther Library, and um, other kind of left-oriented civil rights groups, they filed a lawsuit against uh, the police department and the stress unit. And it came out that most of the time, the stress officers claimed that a young black person attacked them with a knife, and then they had to shoot and kill them. And what the activists charged was that the police officers just carried knives and planted them on victims that they shot often without any cause at all, and that stress was really a terror campaign to try to maintain order and pave the way for the gentrification of midtown detroit and pacify the downtown and send a message to young black males that they needed to be scared if they were going to come anywhere downtown or or in the midtown area and stress um, ultimately was disbanded when coleman young got elected in 1973 after he became mayor and it helped Coleman Young, Detroit's first black mayor, be elected. After several more like shootouts by the stress unit in the early 1973, a coalition formed called the United Black Coalition. And it it ranged from the NAACP to the radical black power groups. It was really a broad cross-section of the black community, but also the liberal and left white community protesting. Um, as allies in support of them, just protesting the stress unit, that it was a murder squad and it had really gotten out of control. And it helped to bring about the end of, you know, white political power in Detroit and the election of Coleman Young. Right, right. Um, that is kind of like why I wanted you to mention that. I mean, stress is was so much more to push the evilness of what stress is, uh, they enabled exactly a change in Detroit. But um, I mean, still, the police department is the police department. And I'm imagining that you guys, you're going to bring some more undergrads to the Ruther and other places. What are your next steps? What's the next part two of this project? You mentioned fine tuning the timeline. But are you going to go into um, the 1980s, what the police department was, especially I'm thinking about like, what was it called? Operation Backbone that started kind of like the late 80s, 90s. Are you going to be going into that era? So we've already conducted the research for two more websites, and it's it's eventually going to be a trilogy. The Crackdown website that's coming out 
is about the Coleman Young era from 1974 to 1993. Coleman Young implemented a lot of reforms. He aggressively pursued affirmative action of the police department to have more black officers and more women officers. He demanded that the police department stop brutalizing what he called, quote unquote, law abiding black citizens. But he also aggressively wanted to fight a war on drugs, a war against gangs, a war against unruly youth on the street. And so the number of police killings didn't really change that much, even after the abolition of stress. It just started happening in different ways, like during drug raids, for example. And the Crackdown website is coming out. And then the third project, which a student team has also researched, is called Detroit Unaccountable. And it's going to take the story from 1994, when Coleman Young steps down and Dennis Archer becomes mayor, through 2014. And the key event here is that in the late 1990s, Detroit again got national attention for being the deadliest police department in the United States. The Department of Justice came in and did an investigation. There was a new Black activist movement called the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality. And the police department was under a federal consent or federal oversight that led to a consent decree from the early 2000s through 2014. And so we've investigated that period as well. And that website's coming out. Hopefully in the fall, we're gonna present it at a community forum at the General Baker Institute in Detroit. Oh, perfect location, perfect location to do that. Um, that's fascinating. You guys have been working so hard and digging through all our archives. Um, you've been mentioning some of the collections. This is this is our usually our last uh, question. We always love to ask our researchers, and um, we like to ask what collections you use at the Ruther. But you used the Burton and the Bentley, and I would love to know what those collections would be have helped you as well. So, this ramble off a few of the collections that anybody who wants to research police and the issues of activism against the police should look at. Well, I'm going to start with the Ruther because it's an incredible archive. The staff there is awesome to work with. I brought um, more than 15 undergraduates to the Ruther multiple times, and we really found all kinds of material there. The, the Ruther has the papers of Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh and Police Commissioner George Edwards, who were the the white mayor and white police commissioner during the early to mid 60s when the civil rights protests were really revving up. And they have the papers of the NAACP. Unfortunately, some years are just missing and it's a real loss for civil rights history in Detroit. But the years that the Ruther does have in the NAACP collection are invaluable. And one of the most amazing collections at the Ruther is the Kenneth Cockrell, uh, Sheila Murphy uh, collection. And Cockrell was a radical lawyer. Sheila Murphy was a radical activist, and they eventually got married. And they were at the center of all sorts of activism, protests, and litigation in the area that connected Black radicals to white radicals in Detroit, their papers are just full of amazing stories and documents. And 
if people are interested in police history, the most important collection at the Ruther is the Detroit Commission on Community Relations. And this was uh, a predecessor to the today's Human Rights Coalition or Commission. And they would they didn't have disciplinary power over the police department, but they would investigate civil rights issues, not just for police, but in housing and schools and employment. And they would they would conduct investigations of government agencies and other types of discrimination. And the papers are a little bit disorganized, but they're incredibly rich. And so, and that's just a little bit of what we found at the Ruther Library. The Burton collection is in the Detroit Public Library right across the street from the Ruther. So it's actually really easy to go research at the Ruther. And if you have enough energy, the Burton's open later. You can walk across the street, keep keep uh, researching. One thing I have to tell you is it's it wasn't always easy to convince undergrads that we should research for, you know, 10 or 12 hours in a row. But <laughs> but so, sometimes we would drive to Detroit and really put in a long shift. And the Burton has the collections of a number of other mayors of Detroit, including including the the mayors that came after Jerome Kavanaugh and Mayor Gribbs, who was mayor during the stress era. They have Dennis Archer, the mayor after Coleman Young, and they have Coleman Young papers as well. And then the Bentley Library at the University of Michigan has the papers of all the governors of the state of Michigan. And they also have the collections of the Urban League, which was a very important civil rights group in Detroit, a kind of mainstream civil rights group, and a number of other uh, collections as well. It's really a Southeast Michigan. It turns out that there was a lot of history in the archives waiting to be found. And I should mention that the Ruther also has an incredibly useful digitized online site especially the photographs of the Detroit News and other photographs that the that the Ruthers made available about this period in Detroit history. So we probably digitized uh, with permission around <laughs> 700 to 800 archival documents and photographs from the Ruthers collection and really worked with the Ruther archivists to make this available to the public. Well, you have done a great service, not only for us. It's, that's what it is about cooperation with historians and archives. We have so much potential to keep doing more stuff to push the archives out of the, the boxes and the walls and get them online so people can research. Matt, thank you so much for being on our, our podcast. Appreciate it so much. And we look forward to seeing parts two and three of the website. Thanks very much for asking me to join you today. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. 
And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Have you been recording this whole time? Not the whole time. Oh, thank God. But it is recorded. It's been recording for yeah, a minutes. I, mi- I miss most of the family drama and the stove drama. That, thank that's, you. That's not recorded. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I think I hit record around the time that you were swearing. Of course you did. <laughs> this is the 75th anniversary, right? We've been doing this for 75 years, haven't we? Yeah. It feels like it sometimes. <laughs> what is the 75th anniversary? What is that? When is diamond? the 75th? No, what is it? Oh, it's Diamond. Diamond. It's our Diamond episode. <laughs> it's our Diamond episode! <laughs> We're a Diamond. We're, you know, Diamonds are never perfect. Diamond in the Rough. Our podcast. Is that what we're going to call it now? Welcome to Diamond in the Rough podcast. <laughs> okay. And we're going to talk to him about his policing and social justice history, history lab. History, history, history lab. History, 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 history. Too much history going on right here. We need to destroy that. <laughs> They're trying. We're, They're trying. And I'm going to help them. <laughs> So see you next year, and have a peaceful holiday from me and Troy. Or is it Troy and I? It would be from Troy and I. Or is it... No, we can't combine our names, can we? Tran? Tran? (laughs) From Tran and I. Isn't that a movie? No, that's Tron. That's Tron. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of beer places are struggling. Yeah, it's just a shame. Because all of our alcoholic consumption has gone down <laughs> since the pandemic day. Not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And of course, someone's going to blame that they organized the union like five years ago. Uh-huh. And it's not that all beer companies are struggling. Nope. Nope. It's those, it's those damn workers. It's those damn workers. They want more money. <laughs> We're saying in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and say some stuff. I can say some stuff. You don't want to hear the stuff I'm going to say. I'm going to no. say a lot of stuff. No. No? <laughs> don't say stuff? I can say stuff. I'll stay stuff. I'll stay stuff. <laughs> See, it's going to be one of those. Excellent.
Excellent. How was that? Brought to you by SAG-AFTRA. <laughs> when you're looking for a union label, look at your union. I always do it at the end of the movies when they were young. I always say, hold it for the credits. Hold it uh -huh. for the credits. At the very end is when they have all the union bugs. Oh, okay. And it's like, see those? <laughs> oh, he's talking union stuff again. You made your children sit through. I fast forward. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs>